Please pray with me once more. Lord, we pray that now you would speak to us as you so often have through your word as it's preached this morning. Come and meet all of our needs, satisfy our hearts, and draw very close to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I've been thinking a great deal this week about a sermon that our brother Robert Fisher preached here uh, probably a month or two ago now. Uh, I don't assume uh, everyone that's here today was here then, and I also don't assume uh, that everyone who heard that message could immediately recall the major points of that message. Uh, The sermon was out of Romans chapter 8, and if you're a Christian and if you're familiar with the Bible, especially with the New Testament, you're probably familiar with that chapter. And one of the points our brother brought out in that message is this series of groanings we see midway through the chapter. Uh, Paul mentions in that chapter and opens up in that chapter this idea that the creation groans, uh, groans under the curse, uh, that all that is wrong with the world is the result of the fall and of the curse, and the creation is, is groaning under the weight of the curse of sin and death. And then just a few verses on from there, Paul acknowledges that even the children of God, the people of God, groan as well. And our brother made the point that God's people are not immune to the sufferings and sorrows and trials of this world, but along with the creation, we too groan under the curse. We too experience pain and sorrow and death and the various effects of the fall and the curse. And then there's a third groaning in that passage, and this is the one that was most emphasized, and that is the groaning of God's Spirit. Uh, Paul conveys that, that when we are in our weakness, When we are feeling our frailty, when we are in the midst of suffering and sorrow, we often don't know how to pray. We don't even know what to say to God and how to give voice to our sorrows and what we're feeling. And the idea is that the Spirit of God in those moments uh, brings, gives voice to our prayers to God with groanings that can't even be uttered. The creation groans under the curse. Even the people of God groan, not being immune to trial and sorrow and suffering. But the Spirit, who is sympathetic to us, He groans also. He meets us in our suffering, and when we don't know how to pray, He helps us, and He gives voice to our prayers. And one of the things that Pastor Fisher highlighted that was so meaningful to me, I trust it was to you, he he acknowledged that in every Bible he's ever owned, he's underlined those words in verse 26, we do not know, that is, we do not know how to pray as we ought when we're in weakness and trial and hardship and suffering, it's like we don't know what to say. And then two verses on, he would underline those words, we do know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. That juxtaposition, we don't know what to say, what to even pray to God in the context of suffering, but we do know that God is good and that He works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Our brother didn't reference this or highlight this, but perhaps you remember how that section actually opens up. Uh, Do you remember the words of Romans 8, verse 18? It's there that Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That's the verse that introduces 
what our brother shared with us a couple of months ago. The idea is that there's this suffering that marks the present age, this suffering that marks the present time, and there's this glory that's to be revealed to us. And the idea in Paul's mind is that the suffering and the glory are incompatible. They can't coexist. They're not even to be compared to one another. What we're going to experience in that age as compared to this age, it's not even worth drawing a comparison. The contrast will be so great that the two are just utterly incompatible, the suffering and the glory. And what's interesting is that Paul in Romans 8 doesn't actually say much about the glory to come. He sticks with the theme of suffering and how Christians can persevere through suffering, what perspectives they should have in their minds in the context of suffering, and he seeks to assure them of the love of God in Christ Jesus that will never leave them, uh, that, that there's no force in creation, in life, or in death that can take them away from the love of God in Christ. But, but Paul doesn't begin to speak about the age to come and the glory that is to come. He says that it is coming. He says that all those that the Lord foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, and He indeed glorified. But he doesn't expound what that glory will be like. But of course, in other places in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul does that. One such passage would be 1 Corinthians 15, toward the end of that passage, where Paul says, For behold, I tell you a mystery. Uh, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and this corruption will put on incorruption. And it concludes with that wonderful phrase, and that day death will be swallowed up in victory. Another passage where Paul speaks of the glories to come is found in 1 Thessalonians 4. You don't need to turn there. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. The idea is everyone grieves. We all live under the curse. We all experience pain and sorrow. But Paul wants the Christians in, Thessalonian, in Thessalonica, as they think about those who have fallen asleep, not to grieve as those without hope. There's a way they can grieve that would be hopeless, and there's a way that they can grieve that would reflect hope in God and in the glory to come. And what Paul then does immediately after that statement is to tell the Christians in Thessalonica about the future and about the resurrection, about the coming of the Lord Jesus and what that will be like. He says in verse 16, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so what I want to do this morning is in essence obey this passage. And I want to take us to the end of all things. And I want to put a picture in our minds in order to help us as we walk through the sorrows and trials of this life. And there are many pictures in the Bible, uh, many pictures the Bible gives us of the coming of the Lord and of the new heavens and the new earth. I'm just going to draw our attention to one picture. It's the picture found in Revelation chapter 7. If you would please turn to Revelation chapter 7. Now, of course, if you are a Christian, if you're familiar with the Bible, 
Again, you might be familiar with Revelation chapter 7, particularly verses 9 through 12, which are the most well-known. It's in those verses that we see the Lamb on the throne at the center of this great throng of people, redeemed from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And as glorious as that scene is, I want us to consider the verses that immediately follow that section in verses 13 through 17, but we'll read beginning in verse 9 through to verse 17. Let me just make this one comment about the book of Revelation. Let me just encourage you uh, not to get caught up in, in what's obscure in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It's a glorious book. But people so often, when they consider the book of Revelation, get caught up in obscure details, and people have debates over the interpretation of numbers and timelines, and they try to use Revelation to sort of interpret geopolitical events and all of that. Personally, I think that's all a bunch of nonsense, really. There's a big anthem, a big statement written over the book of Revelation, and that is that the Lamb of God wins, and that the Lamb of God will be worshipped in glory forever with His people, and we will be with the Lord. That's the big message of Revelation. And so I just encourage you, don't get caught up in what's obscure. Stay with the big sweep of this book, and the big message it's seeking to give, and that is to help the church of Jesus Christ to persevere through trying times. Please follow along as I read Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. This is the Apostle John speaking. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me. One of the elders who just said these words addresses John, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb of God in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We will organize our time around two questions asked in verse 17. One of the elders addresses the Apostle John, and he asks him, who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? First, consider with me that first question. Who are these people clothed in white robes? The elder asked John this question, and John puts the question right back to the elder. Uh, it's possible that John means to say that, that I don't know who these people are, but, but you do. Would you, would you tell me who they are? It's probably true that John didn't immediately recognize who these people are dressed in white robes around 
the throne from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Uh, He doesn't immediately feel himself connected to that group as he looks upon their glory and their resplendence. Uh, He doesn't recognize them. So the elder asks him, do you know who these are? He puts it back to the elder, you know. And then the elder tells him, who are these ones dressed in white robes? What we're told is that they are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Now, presumably, we're to understand that there was a time when the robes of these men and women were not white. There was a time when their robes were dirty, when their robes were filthy, when their robes had stains on them. Uh, But therefore, uh, now they have these white robes, that is clean and pure and spotless robes. But it wasn't always that way. They had been dirty, they had been filthy, they had all been sinners. There was a time when they were not fit to be among this multitude in paradise in the presence of the Lamb. They used to be impure and unclean, but a great cleansing took place. The elder highlights that they weren't just given new robes. He says their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's, it's not like they arrived on the scene with dirty robes and then, and, then, and then they were given a new cloak or something like that that was white. They had to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And though this isn't the main point, there's, a, I think, a veiled reference here, a, a, a veiled indication here of the necessity of the atonement. Some people will ask the question, why doesn't God just forgive sins? Why was the whole business of sending His Son into the world as a sacrificial lamb to die on the cross, why was that all necessary? And of course, the answer is that a sacrifice was needed. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without blood there is no remission of sins. And a sacrifice was needed to justify the perfect holiness and justice of God. And so He sends His Son into the world to be a sacrifice for sinners. Atonement is necessary in order to purify and cleanse people from their sins. And this elder says to John in Revelation 7 that the solution, the cleansing agent, is the blood of the Lamb. Now that's an interesting idea. If we were to dip our clothes or our robes into a pool of blood, they would be stained. They would actually be dirty, they wouldn't be clean anymore, but, but this blood actually cleanses, it actually purifies, it actually makes one to be white. What you have in the blood of Jesus is an undoing of evil. You have a reversing of the curse, you have an actual cleansing that takes place. And this is how blood has always worked in redemptive history throughout the Bible. It was this way under the Old Covenant. Hebrews 9.22 says, indeed under the law that is the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified, that is cleansed or purged with blood. And so the writer to Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, verse 13 and 14, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify or cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In many other places, Jesus' blood is introduced as a cleansing agent to cleanse us from the stains of sin. 1 John 1.7, 1 
But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So on what basis did these people in this crowd now wearing white robes, how did they gain access into heaven and into the presence of the Lamb? How did they get to be around the throne? How did they get these white robes? They were cleansed with the blood of Christ, we're told. It was the blood of Jesus that was definitive, that was decisive, that was the foundation. And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, fix this in your minds. No one gets into heaven any other way. This multitude is not there because they earn their place there. They're not there because they passed with flying colors. They were not there because when they died, they were at their very best. This elder says that they made it there. Their robes were white because of a great fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's what was definitive. That's what was conclusive. That's what introduced this crowd into this place. You can imagine you have this multitude of people. John's looking on at this multitude of people that no man can number from all these different backgrounds and these different tribes, tongues, and peoples. We think of if you were in John's place. All we can do is is imagine what this would be like. And you see this great throng of people. And you're told that there was a time when they were not washed, they were not white. They were in fact sinners. But the reason they're there now is because their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Think of all the things from which they needed to be cleansed. How many there had murdered, had lied, had committed adultery. How many had engaged in various forms of perversion. How many of them had worshipped idols. How many had denied the Lord like Peter. How many had committed suicide. How many there had oppressed others and harmed others. How many of them had abused various substances and had become enslaved to various vices at different times. The number of sins we can speculate were present among that body is as wide as the curse itself. There was probably no form of sin that wouldn't have been present at one time among that great mass of people. But what made the difference? And what brought those sinners into that place clean and pure and spotless with white robes? It is the blood of Jesus which reverses the curse and cleanses us from sin. This wasn't a multitude of pristine saints. It was a multitude of sinners who had been saved by the grace of God and had been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And the text goes on to say that their robes were washed in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, because of this, they are before the throne of God. How did they get there? It was because of that fountain filled with blood. They got their reservation, their ticket in, their place among that body through what Christ had done on their behalf. Now consider with me the second question that the elder puts to the Apostle John. He's asked, where did their white robes come from? And then in verse 13, he asks, and from where have they come? Or where did they come from? Three answers I want to observe with you that I think rise out of the text. First of all, they had come out of tribulation. They had come out of tribulation. Verse 14, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. 
And of course, I'm aware that there are some questions surrounding what exactly the great tribulation is and how to interpret that. I don't want to get caught up in those debates. Again, just stay with me on what's major and what's, what's clear. Uh, personally, I believe that, that that period of tribulation that's being referred to there is the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. You don't have to agree with me on that. But, but the, the, the reality is, the fact of the New Testament is, this word for tribulation is used again and again and again to describe the era in which Christians live in now, uh, the age that the apostles lived in. Uh, so the apostles said in Acts 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In fact, the apostle John in Revelation 1, verse 9, describes himself He's writing to the churches. He describes himself as their brother and partner in the tribulation. Whatever the great tribulation is, the fact of the matter is all Christians pass through an age of tribulation. There is no Christian who will go through this life without trouble, will go through this life without sorrow and suffering and hardship. We will all experience tribulation. The age in which we live now is an age of tribulation. And whether or not there's some future event that's uh, troubled in some pronounced sense, Every Christian who arrives on that great and final day among that throng of God's people will have only got there by passing through an age, an era of tribulation. None of us can escape sorrow and trouble in this world, and indeed, we live now in this age that's marked in a pronounced way by trouble, by sorrow. As our brother said when commenting on Romans 8, we're, we're in that age of, of groaning under the curse we as God's people groan also. So John pictures this great multitude as having made a successful exodus out of tribulation. They had come out of a time of trouble into this new scene. And you could ask yourself, you could again speculate, what troubles had they experienced? Intense battles with sin and with Satan all manner of physical pain and suffering, emotional and spiritual trauma. They had lost children. They had lost spouses. Some had been abandoned by loved ones. Some had experienced persecution for their faith. Many had endured the hatred and hostility of the world. They had endured all kinds of troubles and sorrows. But the glorious point of this passage is that it's all over now. They've come out of that time. They've come out of the age of sorrow, of the age of trouble, and they've come into this state of eternal bliss. That age of tribulation is behind them. They've, they've come out of it. They've successfully made the exodus into that land where troubles will be no more. And then this elder begins to talk about what is different now about their reality in the new heavens and the new earth as compared to their reality before the consummation. And what does he highlight about their new experience? Verse 15 They've come out of the time of tribulation, he says, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence forever. There's a fuller statement in the book of Revelation on what this means to be present with the Lord. In Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, we read, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. This is the fulfillment of Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 4. Christ will return and we will always be with the Lord. They had come out of tribulation and they've come now into the temple of God, into the new Jerusalem, into the unending presence of the Lord in all its fullness. That's not the age we live in now. Now it's true, of course, there's a sense in which the Lord is present with us. He has said He will never leave us or forsake us. His promise is true. He's with us by His Holy Spirit. He said to His disciples in the upper room, I will not leave you as orphans. He said He would send to them the paraclete, the counselor, the advocate, the comforter. And He has fulfilled that promise. And the Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives now through His indwelling in the lives of believers is to mediate to us the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. And He is the means by which the Lord Jesus is in fact present with His people. But of course, we don't experience that presence in all His fullness. We recognize there's a day coming when we will see the Lord face to face. The dwelling place of God in all its fullness will be with us. And He will be our steadfast light, and we will always be with the Lord. In 1 John 3, 2, the Apostle John says there's coming a day when Christ will appear, and we will be like Him because we will behold Him as He is. The point is that day is not today. We're in the time of tribulation. But by God's grace and with the Lord's help, we will come out of tribulation into the presence of the Lord Jesus forever. And the Lord will spread His tabernacle, His presence over us like a blanket. And the trouble, the sorrow, the suffering that we experience today, it will not be worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Secondly, with reference to where these, this multitude had come from, they had come out of great tribulation. Secondly, they came out of hunger and thirst. Verse 16 says, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. The elder is indicating that there was a time, there was an age, where the saints experienced hunger and thirst. That's the age that we live in now. The age in which we live is not only marked by trouble, it's marked by want, it's marked by hunger and thirst. Now, of course, most of us uh, in, in the West, in America in particular, we live in such relative opulence, we live with such relative riches, that if we get hungry, we go to full pantries, we go to full refrigerators, we can go down to fully stocked grocery stores just down the road from our homes. Most of us don't experience prolonged physical hunger. But there are many people in the world that do. You can imagine a um, small orphan in Zimbabwe who comes to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of God's people there. And one of the things he learns is that there's coming an age and there will no longer be any hunger or any thirst. You can imagine this believing child, scrawny, emaciated, maybe living on one small meal a day, and he learns there's coming an age, there will be no more hunger, no more thirst. How glorious that would be to a little boy like that. But of course, the picture is more than that. 
We're not to think only of physical hunger, physical thirst. This idea encompasses all kinds of want. It encompasses the lonely man or woman with an unmet desire for companionship. It encompasses all those who ever wanted to be truly loved, but never experienced real love on this earth. It encompasses the husband or wife abandoned by their spouse, children abandoned by their parents who hunger and thirst for a loving family. It encompasses handicapped people who long to walk or run or to see or to hear. It encompasses people with chronic pain who hunger and thirst to be free from the things that ail them. It encompasses people who have struggled under some dark cloud of depression and despair and long for that cloud to be removed. It encompasses Christians who are broken and burdened by their own sinfulness and hunger for a day when they will be free from sin. It encompasses men and women who are weary from the assaults of Satan and from the attacks of the world, who long for heaven where they will never be harassed or attacked again. It encompasses persecuted Christians who long for the day when they will be free from oppression. It encompasses the church that eagerly waits for the Lord and with alertness and vigilance looks to heaven for the return of the Savior. It encompasses those who hunger for God and whose souls thirst for God to have Him in all of His fullness. And the elder tells John in this passage that in this new age, one of the things it will mean is no more wanting, no more pining, no more longing, no more waiting, no more hoping, no more straining to hang on by faith. All we will have in that day is full delight, full satisfaction. We won't wait for anything. We won't have unmet expectations. We won't have to hope for something that is yet to come. We will have full satisfaction, delight, ecstasy, consummation in the presence of God forever and ever. All wanting, all hunger, all thirst will be gone forever. And then we will cast off faith like a broken pair of glasses for our faith will be turned to sight. And we'll shed hope like a winter coat because the ice and snow are gone and the spring of God's presence will be with us forever. And in that day we will be led like sheep by the shepherd to springs of living water. Verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water. This is nothing other than the fulfillment of Psalm 23. We'll know then more than we have ever known that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Thirdly and finally, these believers, these men and women clothed in white robes, they had come out of great tribulation, they had come out of the era of hunger and thirst, and thirdly and finally, they had come out of sorrow and sadness. Verse 17, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You have a similar statement in Revelation 21 verse 4, 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I wonder, have you ever had someone wipe away tears from your eyes? I don't assume we've all had that experience. Where someone takes your face in their hands and physically wipes the tears from your eyes. I don't know that we could imagine a more tender image. God himself it said that He will do that for us. All of our sorrows, all the things that have caused us to mourn and to cry and to feel pain, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death because there will be no more sin. Can you even imagine that? And what a thought, I'll never sin again. I'll never be sinned against. In that world, there will be no more sin, and therefore there will be no more death. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. The idea is that mourning, crying, pain, sorrow, it will all be a thing of the past. You might imagine one person saying to another, do you remember crying? We'll say, vaguely. Do you remember sorrow? You know, I seem to remember it, but it was so long ago, and you know what? We're not going to have any of that here. It's not even worth thinking about. That's all in the past. That's all gone. The former things have passed away. In the human psyche, it is often the sorrows, the trauma, the pain that are most cogent in our memories. You bring up a difficult episode to somebody from their past and they can be back in that moment without any hesitation. They can remember the sounds, the smells, Everything's so cogent. I don't know psychologically why the human psyche works that way. But you have all sorts of people who have all sorts of things they wish to re forget, uh, that they wish wouldn't stick with them. One of the things that will mark the new age is that all those things that cause us pain, all those things that cause us sorrow, all the tribulation that marks this present age, it'll all be a thing of the past. And we'll have nothing but delight and joy in the presence of the Lamb forever and ever. He'll wipe every tear from every eye, and He will be the steadfast light of His people forever and ever. And more than that, all the sorrows we've experienced in this life, they'll be resolved. They'll have an answer. In the person of Jesus Christ, in the Lamb in the midst of it all who will stand, that Lamb as though He had been slain, all sorrow, all pain, all injustice, 
all abuse, all sin, all death will have its answer. It'll be resolved. Brothers and sisters, comfort one another with these words. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the hope of heaven. How bright is that hope to us now? We can only imagine a day when sorrow and sin and death will be no more. We thank you that through the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ, you have purchased this inheritance for us that our filthy rags could be washed in His precious blood. We pray that through repentance and faith, each one here would go to Jesus, would find cleansing in that fountain filled with blood, that each one here in this place would have a place among that company in white robes on that great and final day when change and tears will be past, when we will be together in a world of unimpaired and unalloyed joy forever and ever and ever, for we will be with the Lord. Bring that hope close to us now and near to us now, even as we grieve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.